You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast from the Cannes Film Festival. Over the next week, Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Rapold and a variety of guests will be discussing the highs and lows of the most famous film event in the world. On today's edition, Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, Zsa Zsangka's Ash is Purest White, Pavel Palikowski's Cold War, and Gabriel Brantes and Daniel Schmidt's Diamantino. But first, a word from our sponsors. Autograph Collection Hotels are carefully chosen for their unique design, passion for craft, and an inherent connection to the locale. Each hotel has its own exactly-like-nothing-else story to tell. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project supports independent film and celebrates the power of storytelling to inspire and connect people and places by leaving a lasting imprint. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly-like-nothing-else. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Filmworker. This documentary about Leon Vitale, who gave up acting to work with Stanley Kubrick for decades, offers a rare glimpse into Kubrick's filmmaking process. In theaters starting May 11th. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, MUBI introduces a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. From timeless masterpieces to festival fresh darlings, Every film is hand-selected. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmcomment. That's mubi.com slash filmcomment for your extended free trial. Uh, hello, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold, Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and we're, again, doing our podcast from... <laughs> From the Palais. Let's just spilled some coffee. And we've already almost had a casualty. Uh, we've we've had a long day, uh, but we'll do do our best to uh, be coherent. I'm joined happily by uh, Dennis Lim, director of programming at Film Society Lincoln Center, and Jonathan Romney, <laughs> who's a contributing editor to uh, Film Comment and writes our Film of the Week column, um, and is writing a lot here as well. And one of the things you've had to write about. If we can just dive in the deep end, is uh, the Godard, which screened today, and in some ways kind of marks the beginning of like maybe the meat of the festival in a way. Yeah, and it was very strange having to write about the Godard and having to file it in an hour flat, which in a way doesn't make sense because you imagine that it's the sort of film that you will have to go about, go away and think about a lot. But on the other hand, there's something about the way he makes films for instantaneity. I mean, my idea, what, what I finally came out with is that a new Godard piece, and I say piece rather than film advisedly, is like an event, but it's only an event here because in the outside world, it will really mean very little and it will mean certain things at certain festivals. But the first time it's seen here, it's almost as if he's using the Grand Théâtre Lumière as the space for a site-specific art event and there's something about the way that you have to take in and somehow absorb this barrage of images of sound of information of text sort of fragments of text which are kind of you know it's like every bit of information is is swept away from you almost before you can take it in and another wave and another wave and another wave keep on coming and in that way I mean I feel like it's his most aggressive and most you know violently charged film just in in terms of you know the sheer amount 
of information and, and imagery he's bombarding you with, and, and at such an incredible rate, and with so much distortion. I, I, yeah, it's even just making out everything that's going on because they have different gradations of videos, different gradations of duped. Like it's a lot of stuff he's clearly just taped off television because you can see the station insignia on some of the stuff that yeah. is showing there. Uh, and then, you know, even the stuff, the new footage that they shoot that's live is, you know, sort of super saturated. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's hard to get your bearings. There are often two soundtracks going on, you know, Godard's own voiceover and then the soundtrack of film and sometimes, you know, mismatch uh, purposely and... And then there are actually different people doing voiceover as well. Uh, so it's, it's, I mean, I, I have to say sometimes it was kind of... Sound is quite amazing, I yeah. thought, actually, how he used the surround sound. And that's, yeah. I, I thought that, like, this just... I love the idea of people having to write about this film immediately, which mm. you just did, and I haven't read your piece. I'm looking forward to it. But um, I this it just makes... You know, a mockery of this whole instant reaction thing that we had. The idea that we are even having to talk about this film, that we're expected to have processed this film, is absurd. I mean, like it, it's so dense, uh, it's so associative in how it moves, and like the the. Uh, how helpful was the press kit? I mean, like did they? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. The press as, kit as largely <laughs> consists of a few phrases and a very long open letter to Godard from uh, Bernard Eisenschitz. Um, interpreting it in his own very kind of free associative right. way. So really, it tells you nothing. At except there were that there annotations are, at the very end yeah. in the credits, like they sort of flash by quickly, but you could see like, a, you know, like yeah. uh, a few of the films and texts yeah. that he was yeah. quoting. Everything uh, from like the very beginning, like Emil Cole, yeah. all the way up to like Elephant. Yeah. They have a clip from. But how do you how do you think this now you've you've thought about it more than than we have since you've been writing about it how do you think this fits into you know late Godard? Um, it seems a little closer to well, his closer to cinema. cinema yeah. yeah, I mean it's a sort of supercharged version yeah. of the language he's using in that. It's quite close in a way to uh, Goodbye to Language, except that he's completely done away now with any semblance. I mean, there are no actors in it and, and, and no drama and what is all he needs are different voices to read fragments of text and it's it's work that seems in a way to be a hundred percent sampled so yeah. you know it could not be more totally modern yeah it's i mean it's uh and then, and then there's also text that comes on screen so that's another type of sampling that goes on uh and it's yeah it's yeah. It's, it's, it's it is absurd and it's my fault i'm here demanding you to, to talk a bit about it but i, but I would say also that yeah. there's one thing that worried me is that finally uh, and I think for the very first time the way he interrupts phrases of music and interrupts uh, fragments of language for the first time I began to think that that fragmentation was kind of a mannerism it had never really occurred to me before although he's obviously been doing mm. it at least since the early 80s but the two things that you know the two comparisons I would make it in a way it's more and more like his almost like a kind of three-dimensional visual, sonic, and textual uh, version of the Burroughs cut-up technique. But right. also, there's one moment when he kind of completely distorts an image so it looks like, you know, a, a piece of film has been processed so it looks like paint, yeah. and it actually looks like a sort of Rauschenberg silkscreen piece. Yeah. And again, yeah, it's like too. Rauschenberg. Mm -hmm. It's his version of a Rauschenberg collage. Yeah. But those interruptions that you mentioned, they're really violent interruptions as well. Mm. I mean, they're like, they're, you know, it's explosions and gunshots are what's interrupting the narration. And it seems to be a, a pretty, a pretty violent, like kind of, you know, despairing, angry 
as as is much of late Godard, but like uh, tonally, you know, I don't know that it um, it seemed to go even further than a lot of the other uh, other films that, that um, he's made recently. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I mean, there's you know recurring kind of call to for the necessity of revolution, but it's not. That's one of the final lines. That's one of the, the final you know. lines, and, but it's not like a liberating one or like a. It, there's not like a. I don't know, a vigor behind it. It's more like the world is kind of fracturing anyway, and that's mm. going to happen. The re- some sort of revolution is going to happen anyway. So it's, it's not like there's a movement or an ideology behind it. It's more, it's more just a reflection of... I mean, there's also some line that, you know, about you know, the, the just despairing line that could have come out of, you know, some documentary about like the rich just are using up resources and the, and the, and the, and the poor, you know, are wasting the resources because they have no choice. And yeah, which I think is his first eco comment. I don't <laughs> think I've ever heard him make something yeah. which is kind of explicitly an eco comment before. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, we should say it's also at least a third of the film is a commentary on the Middle East and the West's attitude towards the Arab world, which he feels you know the west cannot assimilate or describe or understand um weirdly he does it through a french novel of the 1980s um which he uses a a large chunk of in the text you know that narration that goes through with the characters and the place called dofa um i was trying to figure out where dofa was but then i realized no such imaginary republic of dofa and it's from a novel by someone whose name i forget i just looked it up yeah Um, it's called ambition in the uh, desert yeah albert something yeah I actually was going to say that that all this stuff about the Arab world and you know our, our thinking about the Arab world and orient this Orientalist um, way of looking at things that's actually very directly spelled out in the film. It's not people talk about like Godard being so opaque and elusive. That is very bluntly stated, I think, mm-hmm. several times yeah. in the film. And just on another another angle, just to give a, note, a sense of the visuals, some of the, there are a couple motifs that he like returns to as kind of main themes, like. He has in, in the archival footage that he draws on, or the you know found, found footage from different films, trains for a while, or he's, he re- keeps returning to a, um, this kind of inexorable. I don't know if it's a metaphor for the passage of time, or just always recalling you know World War II as well, and particularly the Holocaust. As particularly the Holocaust, yeah, which there is a clip, brief glimpse uh, of, of a burial mass grave there, um, and then fire for a while is like consumption comes up in like the kind of third. But there is something troubling about Godard and his view of history and his view of cinema even that this completely encyclopedic, bulimic view of things where everything is thrown into the same bag and it's almost like these kind of marbles, millions of marbles rattling crazily around his brain. And, you know, you have to ask what meaning do you finally get from a vision that throws everything together so indiscriminately. Yeah. Well, isn't there a line in there, I wish I, I could quote it correctly, where it's something about the pleasure of listening to a madman or something. Yeah, and it's an indefinable privilege, the pleasure of conversing with a madman. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, just so you know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an interesting moment. And then there's another moment, a line he has, you know, I mean, which is more of an aesthetic kind of commentary about the violence of representation, but then in the center of it, there's a spot of calm, which is sort of an interesting idea for this film, especially. I didn't, I don't know that there was much of a center of calm. It was, I mean, it just is remarkable how it's not even like a musical piece where there's, there are like moments of, you know, where things are quieter and slowing down. But the calm comes in some of those incredible seascapes he does using those color treatments he's been doing since, um, 
uh, Eloge de l'Amour, where yeah. he films the sea and just boots the colors up, and it's yeah. absolutely ravishing. That is true, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's working again with uh, uh, Fabrice Aragno, Aragno, I'm not sure, who he worked with on uh, Goodbye to Lang Language, who kind of came up with the 3D rig for that. And actually, as I understand, it has a lot of independence in terms of putting together a lot of the images they shoot. Well, I don't know, have we... Uh, <laughs> Anything else on that, Godard? Or okay, we can we can move along and let that marinate for a while. Maybe we should all see it again. Yeah, I mean, I'm that's something I'm considering. Actually, I'm thinking of seeing it again. Yeah, it probably warrants more than you know. Yeah. anything here, I'm sure. Yeah, a repeat yeah, viewing, definitely. Because it's almost like a palimpsest or something that you just can't even tease apart. Uh, so another film uh, that showed actually a competition film that premiered last night according to this new regime of the official premiere being in the night and then the next morning you have the press screening, is Cold War, uh, the new Pavel Pavlikovsky movie. Uh, and I, does anyone want to start with that? Or? Well, I've got to say I liked it very much. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's the kind of film which is normally described as... Uh, a sweeping romance across the vast canvas of history. Um, but it's set in the Cold War period. It's, it's about, um, it starts after the Second World War, and uh, it's, when does it start, in fact? But it's, it's, it's it starts something in the late 40s. Yeah. 40s. And um, there's a musician who is um, part of uh, a program to uh, assemble young singers from the folk tradition uh, in order to uh, mount um, a sort of idealist picture of, you know, the new, the, in, in, in the new Polish socialist regime, folk traditions as a propaganda weapon. And um, it gets more and more co-opted over the years until they end up, you know, going to Moscow and singing um, hymns to uh, the, the uh, Russian-Soviet regime uh, and, and um, you know, the glories of Stalin. But one of the singers he finds is a young woman played by an uh, extraordinary actress called Joanna Kulik, who is in his previous film, uh, Ida. She was a jazz singer in that. And throughout the film, um, you know, I suppose she embodies the fate of young Poland. Uh, but she ends up, you know, he, he goes to Paris um, and becomes a jazz musician. She ends up there with him as well, singing her Polish folk songs in a kind of nightclub style, absolutely beautifully. Um, and then they end up back in Poland and their fates change over the years. And it's a kind of, you know, Dr. Zhivago tale of, you know, thwarted love across historical changes. But it's the sort of film that, you know, is normally done with a kind of massive virtuoso reviewer a sweep, the sort of film that used to turn up in competition here and be stultifyingly boring. And what makes this film extraordinary is I think that he manages to do it in such a kind of rigorous, intimate way. You know, it is maybe a little too rigorously shot, I mean, frame by frame, there is very little room to breathe. And yet, it's interesting, actually, he's credited, I think, as, as director, writer and image, although there is a, a DOP credited as well. So, so it's frame perhaps a little too meticulous, yeah. but... Yeah, um, I, I think I, I more or less agree with that, even though I, I think I'm maybe less enthusiastic um, than you are. I appreciated the economy of it because it's so... It's really not what you'd expect with the material um, and, you know, this sweep of time that the film is covering. Um, but 
I, I think there's something about that economical approach that makes it a little bit too tidy. Um, you know, it's sort of like it's it's unfolds in this sort of shorthand and like every 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 scene every situation like points to something means something and there's a sort of like maybe overly tidy like vacuum sealed quality to the film that left me a bit cold um which is you know a bit odd for a film that's supposed to be this like tragic romance um and so that seemed to be working at cross purposes at times but certainly i think you know one of the stronger competition titles this year it's actually strangely structured very closely to the um Care film we've just seen in that it takes these sudden leaps across time um, to moments when suddenly you realize that the character's fates have changed at one point we realize that he's back not only back in poland but that he spent several years in prison and the mm -hmm. only thing that tells us this initially is his hair's much shorter yeah. um, so it's very bold in its storytelling these massive ellipses and it's very clever as well the way it uses different styles of music to suggest social change and the way that music and art and the folk tradition are co-opted into different ideological systems i should also say although some of the paris stuff doesn't work very well and cedric khan i think has completely the wrong hair for a french <laughs> film director of the early 60s there is however a wonderful jeanne balibar moment wonderful. where she's she plays a poet and she's asked to by uh, the heroine to explain one of the lines in a song and she goes c'est une métaphore and then uh, the polish woman just goes off by herself and goes metaphor idiotka <laughs> yeah that's, uh, that's, that's yeah seems seems to inoculate the movie against uh, i don't know too, too much analysis um yeah but i mean i i have to confess that i i did also find it a little um a little bloodless somehow i mean as 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 passionate as you know their their relationship is supposed to be in is this Thing that keeps drawing them together, you know, even across time, despite all the literal history between them, it's it's still, yeah, didn't didn't really come to a boil uh, for for me. And I ended up finding that I liked the movie conceptually. Yeah. I, I if I embraced the schemes and like the the, the kind of ideas in it, I liked that almost more than the, than the love affair. Uh, you know, one of them, this kind of carefully worked out idea of the subject and the object just you know that he works at in the very beginning from the very first shot of a guy working like a bagpipe in the ethnographic thing and it's great because like I, I i don't know if this you know this is the kind of shot that someone might get rid of but the bagpipe player is playing and he like gives a look to the camera and then looks back and, and it almost looks like someone off camera was saying look at the camera you know because everyone else is supposed to look at the camera and it's like he didn't really want to so at the very beginning it's something you're conscious of and then that continues to be played with um, as, it, as it goes on you know being on either side of some sort of barrier or some sort of boundary um, so I, I you know I, I like that more than I don't know trying to imagine that these two were great lovers that will be remembered to the end of time and speaking of the hair, that, that was also how we knew he, he was in Paris for a while. He had stopped shaving. <laughs> he started living the bohemian life in the shorthand. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project celebrates the synergy between independent film and autograph collection hotels. Indie filmmakers and screenwriters tell stories that inspire and connect us. And at Autograph Collection Hotels, storytelling is in our DNA, enabling travelers to connect with each other and places around the world in a memorable way. This dynamic cultural program is anchored in three key programs, screenwriters in residency, free indie films streamed at hotels throughout the U.S. and Canada, 
a portfolio of beautiful hotels and key film festival destinations? Learn more by visiting autographcollectionhotels.com. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Tony Ziera's Filmworker. This fascinating documentary introduces audiences to Leon Vitali, who, after starring as Lord Bullingdon in Barry Lyndon, gave up acting to work as Stanley Kubrick's right-hand man. The story of their decades-long collaboration offers a rare glimpse into Kubrick's filmmaking process. An official selection of the 55th New York Film Festival, Filmworker opens May 11th at Metrograph with Q&As before expanding to select cities. While we're here reporting from the Croissette, those who aren't with us can still enjoy the films of Cannes. Mubi is presenting a fantastic lineup of favorites from past years of the festival. Now showing on Mubi is Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank, a raw and potent look at a young woman's rocky youth amidst poverty. Fish Tank is one of the best British films of the last decade. The fierce acting career of Michael Fassbender started here. Discover this along with 29 other hand-picked films streaming right now on Mubi for free. Just go to mubi.com slash film comment to claim your extended 30-day free trial. So that was something that we saw this morning. And then we had a packed day because then tonight, a couple hours, just less than an hour ago, we saw the new, another competition title, the new Zha Zhangke movie, Ash is the Purest White. Or is it Ash is Purest White? Although it's known in French as Les Eternels, which is which much is cooler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think it's like a superhero yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a superhero movie. <laughs> Could you I mean, elaborate on that? No, I mean, you know, she's uh, her character, you know. She she's, is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty resilient. Um, it's. Yeah, I think it has the same three-part structure, I guess, more or less. The three three time periods, certainly, that, that it shares with its uh, jazz previous film, Mountains Made Apart, which mm-hmm. spans, I think that one spans something like 20 years. And also Touch. Which also, the, which three that, piece. That was so a three, true, yeah. was it three, three or four? Three? Three, I think, yeah. yeah. I thought it was three. But those were like interlocked, like separate stories, right? This this goes through. Yeah. Um, anyway, quite a lot of similarities, I think, with the last film. I liked it, uh, but I think you know this. This is it's interesting to see Jia sort of revisiting this very familiar world that he's created and revisited over and over again from the very beginning. But I think trying to find new new registers, new tones, um, you know, new ways to work with the material. I think this film is 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 really has really heartbreaking moments, really funny moments, um, and. I think she again, Zhao Tao, um, his you know wife, muse, lead actress is is great. Uh, it's another yeah. really rich role that he's created for her. Um, yeah, I thought she was yeah. phenomenal in this. Actually, I, I, it was almost yeah that the movie wouldn't really carry along without without her being at the center of it. Well, it's an extraordinary performance. She does have a sort of superhero moment yeah. where she whips out a gun and the style of the film She whips out a lot of changes. things. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but her gun moment is extraordinary. And it's yeah. the moment of sort of personal glory in a way, which round, around which the whole story uh, revolves and at which everyone's fate changes. Um, but so basically it's the story of uh, a woman who is the partner of uh, you know, a successful local gangster and then he's um, menaced by uh, another gang. She comes to his defense and she refuses to testify about the fact that she's 
been given a gun by him because she doesn't want to incriminate him. And then, of course, their relationship completely changes and she's left adrift. And then later in the film, he becomes adrift. And, and it's really fascinating the way that the film is about these radical reversals of fortune in which people either, um, you know, take their own fate in hand and get on with it as she does, you know, absolutely relentlessly and with great comic invention yeah. as well. Yeah. There's a great scam she pulls uh, at one point. Um, or, or they kind of let themselves be carried along by, you know, the tide of history and, and basically destroyed. Um, uh, I, I felt in this film, I mean, you know, there wasn't anything in it that I hadn't seen before. I felt that he was... Uh, treading water in a sense or consolidating his his narrative skills in in a kind of straighter way than he did in the last two films but i found it enormously engaging and very moving partly because her performance is so incredibly restrained and reserved you know we know she's going through hell but she's constantly holding back constantly holding back and i found that was really very moving yeah, I think it's the inverse of the last film in a way, which kind of opens up in time and space, and you know they end up in Australia in the future, yeah. um, and you know in this one it's literally circular in its structure. I mean, like they, you know, it's about they they, they find they end up um, where they began, with with their roles reversed in some ways. I mean, sorry, not try not to give too much or anything <laughs> away. You just spoiled the movie. <laughs> um, it, it also is the great uh, wardrobe movie of the film so far. Her clothes all the way through the film do I, yeah. tell this incredible yeah. story. Absolutely, yeah. yeah I, I, I actually love his, um, you know, we've seen all these films that use music like Leto and oh, yeah. Cold War, but I, as I was watching this, I was thinking, I really love Jazz's use of music. I think he's somebody who really gets across what music means to people, you yeah. know, and how it functions in their lives. And, and I love how those... Maybe some people might find them overly self-indulgent, but those self-referential touches, you know, like this echoes a platform with all those performances. And, and when she talks about having seen a UFO, which her character does in still life, yeah. I thought that was a nice, uh, yeah. nice little moment. And I was really hoping that it would veer into science fiction in the third <laughs> act when, you know, when the the guy shows up talking about aliens. Um, it was a wonderful moment that she meets that, this guy. Yeah, this really amazing. performance on the yeah. train <laughs> saying, well, I'm running this incredible program I'm going to be doing these UFO tours and then he says um, actually I, I just run a convenience <laughs> store and she says it doesn't matter and they just have this hug and it's extraordinary yeah yeah, yeah it's a very moving moment and a, a nice just moment of stillness which is something else I like and is kind of key to her performance she's often just takes these moments to collect herself and, and you just get to see her process um, and she just has such control it's and it's, it's really beautiful and he's also found this incredible metaphor in real life, which he refers to time and time again, which is the Three Gorges Dam, which right. is oh. the subject of still life, yeah. isn't it? Right? Yeah. And, and it's referred to again here, and you know, they say the next time you come to this spot, right. it will, the water will be up to here. Yeah. And of course, you know, all the way through, you know, it's running, the water is running through the film, and yeah. time is running through the film. And um, Yeah, it's almost the literal, yeah. you, you can't cross the same river twice, you know, <laughs> in this case. And, and just the landscape is always changing behind them, and, and so, you, yeah, it's, it's hard for there to have any feeling of, of uh, stability, really. 
um, much less what goes on in, in their lives. Um, and yeah, I really like the use of music as well. And, and just all these little details. At one point, the use of the English word anyway. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's, it's used to like maximum dramatic effect. It just, it sums up the moment, their moment, like a historical moment. It's, it's really great. Yeah, there, there are also some wonderful, ridiculous ballroom dancing moments in it. <laughs> Excellent. Ballroom dancing at a funeral. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Show them what you got. Yeah, that was a... That was a, a good good moment. Um, well, we've we've breezed through. We've covered a lot of ground. Well, it was uh, a good day. It was a good day. Yeah, this is yeah. Again, this is the Friday, and uh, you know, typically, kind of, I have to say, the the kind of bigger movies are on the Friday and Saturday night. I think like Tony Erdman was on a Friday or Saturday. Carol was a Friday or Saturday. So, are there any other? We have a little bit of time to talk, maybe a bit of some of the outlier films. If you saw anything else, I saw a very. Uh, very amusing film, Diamantino today. Oh, which I'm going to try and see tomorrow. Yeah, which was it's, which is in a Critics Week uh, by Gabriel Abrantes and uh, Daniel Schmidt, uh, and it's about a football soccer player. Uh, I have to speak for so many audiences here, so um, I don't want to exclude anyone. Uh, and he, who basically, you know, screws up a big goal. Uh, and then has an existential crisis, uh, and he's this big lug uh, that you just adore watching just deal with things with the emotional capacity of a puppy. Uh, puppies do figure prominently in the, in the movie as well. They're kind of part of this vision he has, uh, which is illustrated. I don't want to, I mean, this is just stuff to look forward to, Jonathan. So <laughs> this is all, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just very, uh, you know, kind of loony uh, and, and, and funny and uh, ridiculous plotting. He has two sisters, you know, who could have been out of, I don't know, Coen Brothers movie or something. There's these evil sisters who are sort of twins, I guess. Um, and it's just, seeing how he deals with it. there's a genetic engineering subplot so it's just throwing a whole bunch of this whole like you know pastiche of a plot onto the screen um i don't know if you can speak to the that rest was, of their work that was the one that was the one film non-official selection film that i saw today as well yeah. um uh, enjoyed it enormously uh i'm a fan of you know their work gabriel brantis and daniel schmidt who also sometimes work with two other filmmakers benjamin crotty and alex carver we actually did a, a group retrospective of their work um, a couple of years ago, called Friends with Benefits, um, and they've um, they worked together in different different permutations. Um, and this has some similarities to the film that Abrantes and Schmidt made a few years ago called Palaces of Pity. Um, it's I love the sensibility. I think it's great that that Cannes is including something like this. It's certainly one of the most out there films in the entire festival. I, I would guess. Yeah. Also, just kind of the more openly joyful, joyfully yeah. goofy and funny things. That you, you you watch a movie like that and you realize how rarely you're seeing a comedy. You know, it's in, and you know you realize that that is unconsciously regarded as not a serious or consciously regarded as not a serious genre in some ways. Um, but I also like that this is not a movie that plays up its irony too much. So you, you don't feel like you're in on a joke that yeah. they're really dedicated to the soccer player and and in all his like total dullardness. Yeah, excellent performance by yeah. Carlo Toccata, yes. best known for his role in Taboo, maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, I did not make that connection. Yeah. So, yeah, soccer fans, something to look forward to. Football fans as well. Uh, and, yeah, so that's in the Critics Week. Um, I don't know there was anything else that really jumped out um, today particularly. 
Um, well, I didn't see anything that jumped out as, as you know, extraordinary or radically different. But uh, I saw a film, French film called Scheherazade this morning. And, you know, it's something we've seen before, although it's done very well here. Um, it's uh, a Marseille story about a young guy who comes out of juvenile detention and meets a young woman, teenage prostitute, becomes her pimp, gets sucked into etc., etc., etc. You kind of know where <laughs> it's going. And it's very effectively done um, with a young, non-professional cast. And, you know, they're, they're characterful enough to make it somewhat different. But the reason I'm mentioning it particularly is because it's shot by a guy called Jonathan Rickebourg, who does seem to become be becoming one of the kind of distinctive French uh, DOPs. Um, he worked on uh, that film, I forget the director, um, The Challenge, uh, Yuri which Ankarani. was about... Exactly, Yuri Ankarani, who's about the, uh, the falcon race in the desert. Um, very, very kind of vivid, rich, um, searing colors blue yeah. and blue and gold um and also um in a very different register made um uh, the death of louis Catorze with um albert serra and in this film very strangely you know he takes a completely sort of realistic uh milieu and skews it in a very weird expressionist way by pumping up the oranges and the kind of the neons uh, the greens and and uh um, blues and it's very very strange lighting scheme with some um, lens flare that looks right out of those Star Trek movies I mean it's quite <laughs> strange but and it's almost a case of the DOP taking the film over in some ways but um, it certainly brings a, a supplementary something so uh, Jonathan Rickabur definitely you know some a, a credit to watch yeah um, definitely yeah all right. Well, I, I think uh, we all have places to go, sleep to do, <laughs> uh, and food to eat. Uh, but uh, tune in next time. And thanks again for joining us. And thank you, Jonathan and Dennis. Thank okay. you. Good night. Don't forget to check out Fish Tank, now streaming on Mubi. Claim your extended 30-day free trial at Mubi.com slash film comment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film comment. The Autograph Collection Indie Film Project celebrates the synergy between independent film and autograph collection hotels. Indie filmmakers and screenwriters tell stories that inspire and connect us. And at Autograph Collection Hotels, storytelling is in our DNA, enabling travelers to connect with each other and places around the world in a memorable way. This dynamic cultural program is anchored in three key programs, screenwriters in residency, free indie films streamed at hotels throughout the U.S. and Canada, a portfolio of beautiful hotels and key film festival destinations? Learn more by visiting autographcollectionhotels.com. Autograph Collection Hotels, exactly like nothing else. While we're here reporting from the croissette, those who aren't with us can still enjoy the films of Cannes. Mubi is presenting a fantastic lineup of favorites from past years of the festival. Now showing on Mubi is Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank, a raw and potent look at a young woman's rocky youth amidst poverty, Fish Tank is one of the best British films of the last decade. The fierce acting career of Michael Fassbender started here. Discover this along with 29 other hand-picked films streaming right now on Mubi for free. Just go to mubi.com slash film comment to claim your extended 30-day free trial.